Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by a special guest, Ed Colleton, Managing Partner and Chief Operating Officer at Bessemer Venture Partners. Ed, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Ramin, thanks so much for having me. So, Ed, you know, maybe it'd be helpful to take a step back, as we've done with, you know, a couple of other, our other guests, and talk a little bit about how you got into venture capital. You know, you had an interesting academic and professional journey before you ended up in VC. You were in the Navy, worked at the Joint Chiefs before going to Harvard Law School. And then after Harvard Law School, you practiced corporate law at Davis Polk, and you went on to be a partner and chief operating officer of J.P. Morgan Capital in New York. And then after that, you joined Bessemer, you know, first in New York and, and then in Silicon Valley. So talk a bit more about your journey, the different types of roles you held, and what you got out of them, and how this led to joining a VC firm. Sure. Happy to do that. Um, So I I grew up um, in New York. I grew up sailing and racing boats on Long Island Sound, and that led me to pursue a Navy scholarship at Cornell. And when I showed up on campus, it really wasn't what I expected. Um, They cut my hair really short, and we sort of started marching around uh, doing military drills, and I really wouldn't have lasted very long, but thanks to an officer there, it was interesting, the Cornell Navy unit seized a drug-running sailboat, and we rebuilt it, and then took it out of the Great Lakes, and then out on the Atlantic and raced it to Bermuda, so you know that, that made it a much more palatable military experience at Cornell. And so I stuck around and made a bunch of good friends and, uh, and then had a really terrific experience with a young professor there who had just won the top prize for um, the best economics PhD in the country. And he ended up at Cornell and I had, uh, he ended up being my advisor and I ended up doing economic research, econometric research with him. And we put out a joint paper um, on sort of money supply and measurement. And so that, that was sort of, you know, two maybe pivotal experiences for me there. I graduated from Cornell, and then I was assigned to a ship in the U.S. Atlantic Fleet out of New York. And there I was the ship's navigator and combat information center officer. And suddenly, you know, coming from kind of an academic environment, I was in charge of a division of men, some of whom had 15 years of experience in the Navy. And I found out pretty quickly you can't really just order people around. I tried that, but that didn't really work well. Um, so I started to learn something about leadership, and uh, and it was interesting being on a Navy ship and you look at all the Navy regs. Um, you really can't do everything they required you, you to do. Someone on my ship calculated it would take more than 24 hours in a day to kind of do everything you were supposed to. So you really pretty quickly had to learn, you know, what should I really focus on? What were the real problems? And we started to do this thing that we would call kind of walk-around management, where you sort of walk around your spaces and you figure out what's going on and figure out you know, how to help solve uh, the key problems that were there. And then I really just enjoyed uh, driving a ship. It was sort of an art to drive a 700-foot ship into, into port and uh, learned a lot about all the ship systems, propulsion, um, lots of stuff on, about navigation that I really enjoyed. And that, so that was just a fun overall learning experience that was sort of quite different than being in an academic environment. And, uh, and then after that, I had an opportunity to go to the Joint Chiefs of Staff in D.C., a place that I really knew little about. Uh, it was at the tail end of the Reagan era, 
and I went to something called J5, which is the Plans and Policy Directorate of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and that really, um, that, there was an interesting program there called the, the Program to Exercise Navigation and Overflight Rights Around the World, where fleet commanders uh, would, would look at challenging uh, rights of other countries under um, customary international law, and they coordinate with the fleet commanders in the State Department and the National Security Council, and that, that was just a really interesting program to be involved in and to see a little bit of the political environment from a very different perspective. And in that office, I worked in an office with half lawyers and half people like I, I was operationally from the field, gained a lot of respect for the lawyers, and so decided, hey, maybe it was a good idea to get a law degree. So I, I came into Harvard Law School, you know, having had a couple of experiences which were interesting and that maybe shaped a little bit of what I did, which was take a whole variety of courses and and, and really try to learn a lot about a lot of different areas. And, uh, and one of my favorite courses, for example, was the family law course taught by Martha Minow. I'm not just saying that, she, she, she's dean now, but at the time she was a really young professor and that was really uh, interesting and fun. And then in the end, I ultimately, since I was interested in business, I chose to uh, go into corporate law like New York City was the place to go. I had been, uh, you know, from just outside the New York area. So I ended up choosing to go to Davis Polk there, which seemed, some of the people there seemed to have some, you know, reasonably good balance in their lives, so that seemed like a good choice. And I spent six years there, most of it doing private equity deals for a firm called DLJ Merchant Banking that was just taking off, and there was a guy there running it called named Tony James who now is, is pretty much running Blackstone. And it was really a lot of fun to be uh, their outside advisor and doing a lot of work for them on LBOs at a time when, you know, not a lot of people knew what private equity was all about. But I, but I ultimately, after that experience, I figured I really wanted to be inside the business and be part of a team, you know, maybe take advantage again of some of the leadership aspects that I learned while I was in the Navy. So that led me to go to J.P. Morgan. And uh, they were really building up their global private equity business. And I went in there and spent the first year as the GC of their global PE business. And then the head of the group was a really terrific Australian guy. Uh, it was a great group. We got along really well. The culture at J.P. Morgan was really terrific. And so he joined. He asked me to join the business unit and become the chief operating officer there. And it was an interesting time. The dot-com boom was going on, and lots of business units at J.P. Morgan were also looking to invest capital in startups. And so I got an opportunity to uh, work on deals like uh, we did Archipelago, which became almost half of the New York Stock Exchange. So sat on the board there, learned a lot about uh, sort of electronic trading from doing a host of other deals. And that was just a, a really a, a terrific business unit to be. It was one of sort of the five principal lines of business at J.P. Morgan, and that was great. Uh, but along came uh, uh, Chase Manhattan Bank, and they decided to buy J.P. Morgan. And the firm went from 12,000 people to 120,000 people. Uh, the culture was very different at Chase. Um, I liked a lot of the ethics and what was happening at J.P. Morgan. It was a place that wasn't always bottom line oriented. And so I decided to leave and, and took time off, got married, did some traveling, and then had, just had the good fortune to join a venture capital firm in 2001. 
Um, I think some people said, you know, I was joining Venture at exactly the wrong time, <laughs> just as Venture were melting down from the bubble. Um, but it was really, it was interesting because at the time I was able to come in and really help um, as this cottage industry was really becoming an industry, you know, putting out lots of capital and trying to think about how it was doing that. I had an opportunity to come into one of, one of the top firms and how do they rebuild, where do we go from here, how do we transform in, 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 in what was going to be a very different environment. And, and so it's just a lot of fun trying to trying to do that. And you know, I was able to sort of join, draw on a lot of the skills that I'd had in the past to make that happen. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of what you said there resonates, right? And I, I think one of the things, you know, I've, I've really internalized is, you know, on, on this podcast itself, we've talked to other VCs as well, is that I think a variety and breadth of nonlinear experiences actually ends up being critical and integral to, you know, overall career success, but especially in, in venture when, you know, you're seeing so many different industries and so many different types of companies. Um, and so now you're in venture, right? And you've been in the industry for 15 years, you've been quite successful at it. And, um, you know, Bessemer has invested in a number of fantastic companies, um, LinkedIn, Yelp, Blue Apron, Periscope, Twitch, Shopify, Twilio, you know, amongst many others. Talk a little bit more about, you know, Bessemer's thesis and, and what the unique value prop of the firm is, you know, especially when thinking about the place of the firm in the larger venture landscape. You know, I, I think one of the things that makes BVP especially interesting and different from other valley firms is the focus on investing in specific roadmap areas and your global footprint with offices in Israel and India. So shed some light on the strategy and the, and the culture there and really how it ties to your fund's thesis and value prop. Yeah, sure, happy to do that. And, and, you know, thanks for mentoring a bunch of the good companies because we've got a whole laundry list of companies we invested in. <laughs> and, uh, and then in the anti-portfolio, if you go on our website of companies that we had the opportunity to invest in but failed to do so, and they turned out to be great companies. So it's, it's a humbling business, but, but a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, Bessemer is interesting because it came out of a family office and they started doing technology investments in the 1960s. And one of the things um, they pretty quickly realized was that over the course of someone's career, if they were to stay in venture and be successful, you really what you were going to invest in really was going to change over time. So what what they really ended up doing, just you know, more out of trial and error, was hiring curious people. And we, today we, we kind of call those people athletes that really are comfortable moving between areas. And then I would say in the, in the early 1990s, this practice became a little bit more uh, formalized. There was a, a partner that hadn't promoted anyone, anyone in about a decade. Uh, there was a partner that they promoted. He was trying to figure out where... Uh, to focus, and so they told them, why don't you just take six months and talk to as many smart people as you can and try to figure out where to invest. But don't, don't do anything, just go and, and, and talk to some, some really smart folks. And so he came back after that exercise and he said, you know, there's this thing called the internet and I think I'm going to focus there. And that was really the start of sort of the formal roadmap process where, um, you know, we, we people would go out and rather than you know, do deals that kind of come in the door. They look in specific areas and areas that they think are going to be their poised for growth for a host of different reasons. And they, and they build that roadmap and they start to put their toe in the water and make some investments. And that becomes became at least a process here that we think has sustained um, some, some good performance. And, um, and we're not just solely focused on Silicon Valley. It, it's really meant 
you know, we're okay with getting on planes and looking for deals in other parts of the world. For example, uh, in, in 2002, we found Skype when it was two guys in Estonia. They couldn't even come to the U.S. because they were being pursued by the recording industry. So we had to go go meet them and and sort of think about the deal and think about even the legal risks of you know, investing in someone that was uh, had a lot of lawsuits hanging over their heads. So we um, we've been in Israel since the 1990s and in India for a decade. And and you really have to you know you have to go to where the deals are and we're comfortable doing that, not not just staying in Silicon Valley. Um, and then. I think part of the culture that's interesting is that we have partners that um, really, they don't have a boss. They, they go out to win deals, build their own roadmaps. We don't, no one tells them what to do. They really have to make it happen. And then they come back to the firm, and we try to talk them out of doing deals that we think maybe don't make sense. But they can also sort of do something called we, we call running the red lights, where you know we give you enough rope to go to a deal because you think it's really happening. And some of our most successful deals have been really controversial deals internally, but ones where the person doing the deal has really said, you know, hey, I think this is going to be an interesting company. Um, and then I think um, you have to really create a culture where people want to be uh, be working and, and be at the firm long after sort of the financial incentives have ceased to be, you know, a key motivation. And so, you know, do they really enjoy working with entrepreneurs? Are they comfortable with failure? Are they okay with missing some deals? Are they humble? You know, are they willing to kind of pick themselves up and try something else when it doesn't work? I think a lot of those cultural attributes are kind of key to maybe building a successful firm. Yeah, no, I think a lot of the nuggets there, right? The global focus, lean operating model, culture are, are some interesting ones, and I can see how that's had an integral part of VVP success. And I actually want to dig into some of those, I think, a little bit deeper as, as we continue the conversation. But I want to for first focus on, on something you mentioned, you know, just now the anti-portfolio. You know, you, you guys are pretty famous for putting up your anti-portfolio on your website, um, which is, you know, as you mentioned, right, a lot of the general generational companies you missed out on. And I really enjoyed, you know, some of the anecdotes around not only which companies you missed out on, but, you know, specifically how. Um, I think my favorite was actually the Google story with your partner, David Cowan, um, and the story goes, you know, Cowan's college friend rented her garage to Sergey and Larry for their first year. In 99 and 2000, she tried to introduce him to these two really smart Stanford students writing a search engine. Students, a new search engine? In the most important moment ever for Bessemer's anti-portfolio, Cowan asked her, how can I get out of this house without going anywhere near your garage? So many of your partners, you know, Dave and yourself included, have been ranked on the Forbes annual Midas list, um, tracking, you know, the top VCs globally and a significant honor and really a marker of successful venture investors. And, and I really say all this to get to the core question of, you know, what is it about startups that makes it really hard, you know, even for the best to predict winners and losers? Um, and, you know, what, what all have you learned from as a firm and, and personally, have you learned from your anti-portfolio and how do you guys in, harness it internally to become better investors? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think that, you know, the business continues to be a real art where, you know, figuring out the best, you know, deals out there or what, you know, what really is going to take off is just, you know, it's, it's a whole mix of factors. It's sort of this soup where you're trying to judge, you know, do, do you have a really interesting entrepreneur? Are they really passionate about what they're going after? Is there a good market opportunity? Is it the right time? 
you know, do they have do they have the right team? Are they sort of you know humble enough to figure out and you know take advice? Or that, and it just you know sometimes a number of those things work, but there's one key missing ingredient, and it doesn't happen. Sometimes you just sort of judge that you know someone you know maybe isn't going to be successful. In fact, in fact they are, or you know you don't have a good cultural fit, and you're not really comfortable backing them, but they're successful anyway. And so we it's sort of this apprentice business where we're all continuing to learn as we go and, and, and as the market evolves. And, it's, and I think that, that's what makes it interesting and fascinating that you're, you never get it right. You sometimes get it right. And as long as you get, you know, there, there are a handful of deals where they really do take off and they do uh, really do well, uh, you're going to get more capital and you're going to get, you can go back to the well and you can kind of try again. But it's, it's uh, you know, building that whole culture where you can, and you have enough initial success there that you're able to sort of keep it going yeah my favorite piece on that is that you know the the right way to think about venture is really it's it's not a batting average game it's a slugging percentage game um and when you get it right you know it 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 matters that when you get it it matters that you get it right because when you get it right you really get it right um so you know that's absolutely right i mean you can only lose one times your money but if it you know if it really goes well it It could be a thousand Yep. Exactly. So let's you know let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about the future of of both you know your investment purview as as well as the venture industry. So I've got a two part question for you. You know, first, you know, you guys invest in companies uh, obviously that are aiming to you know massively disrupt industries. So first question is, you know, what are you excited about these days? Is it a specific vertical? Is it a specific you know tech stack like uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, machine learning? Um, and then second question is, how do you think about disruption to your industry itself? You know, the venture climate has changed tremendously, um, you know, since the early 2000s, since you've been involved and, and not just because of the bubble, but, you know, I think there's a lot of different interesting underlying shifts that are going on, technological advances. I think the funding environment and, and structure itself are undergoing interesting shifts. You know, seed stage funding has grown significantly. It's getting more institutional, crowded. Um, and seeing a lot of new and innovative vehicles coming up. Traditional Series A players are also moving in that direction with new models emerging. And, um, you know, I think Andreessen's full-out operating model, really going after the LA agency type model has been interesting. Google Ventures and kind of the hybrid corporate venture firms. And, and then I think as of late, you know, you've seen a lot of the late-stage growth equity folks, you know, really getting um, more involved and, and more involvement from traditional institutional investors. So, you know, how do you, you know, how do you think about disruption to venture? Do you, and, and when you think about it, do you think of, you know, organ operating model issues like, you know, firms that will specialize more in verticals or geography or stage? Um, or do you think about the sheer impact of technology, you know, like blockchain and, and AI? So two-part question, um, you know, how, what are you excited about these days? And then how do you think about disruption to the venture space? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, you know, I would say in terms of the current environment, lots of capital right now is overwhelming venture, and it doesn't take much capital to do that uh, because, you know, venture is such a small fraction of the market. You know, at some point, you know, that cycle will go the other way. Um, you know, not all 200 unicorns that are out there are going to have this. A lot of, you know, late stage and angel investors are going to have losses and um, there's not that many great companies that will be built, and and it's really hard to pick those great deals. So, um, you 
know, I think for us, I mean, it, it, it helps to have had a platform where we have a history of success because you have entrepreneurs that do uh, want to work with you. Um, but I think one of the things that's key is that we don't get too carried away at this point in the cycle. It's easy to do that. Um, and you want to sort of con continue to be re really consistently investing, um, not to get too carried away in sort of a frothy environment like today, and also not, you know, not invest, you know, not cease investing when, you know, when things get really challenging, which is really hard to do as well. Um, but, you know, I think what you say is true. Venture is no longer a cottage industry. Um, you have to provide entrepreneurs with more than just capital. Um, you know, you need to know the space really well, so I think verticals really matter. Um, you need to help them with talent, with customers. You need to, you know, help them avoid mistakes. Um, and I think you have to have a model overall that provides value and not just, you know, marketing yourself effectively that you're going to do that. So, you know, I think we're... You know, we're focused on really staying disciplined and trying to continue to look for new and interesting roadmap areas to spend time on. Uh, I, I don't think I see blockchain disrupting VC. I don't see AI replacing good investment judgment, at least in the near term. Um, you know, does software help VCs execute their business? Absolutely. And, and if we use, are we using terrific software that, you know, years ago we just, you know, we talk about and then email about know how we're going to help companies or who knows who in terms of putting in some good talent and we're using a lot more software to help us do that um, so vertical focus that that is absolutely I think essential um, but you know I, I don't see the, the overall model at least at this point being disrupted ultimately it, it's really you know making good judgments about the people you're backing that really matters and that you know, that's an apprenticeship business that takes, you know, I think a lot of experience to kind of think about and execute well. But I think it's kind of the space will continue to evolve. Yeah, I think it's interesting actually to note kind of on the point you were talking about how um, how little of capital it actually takes to overwhelm the venture industry. You know, all of private tech investing is something to the tune of $50 billion. And then in absolute dollars, when you hear that figure, um, especially a lot of how the media is focused, I think, on startups and venture, you know, the past couple of years, it, it sounds like a lot of money. And it, it is a lot of money, but it's r incredibly small when you think about it in relative terms to other things, right? Just the Fortune 500 alone will have a trillion in buybacks and dividends, you know, in this year. Um, and so when you when you kind of think about it that way, you think that, you know, it's 5% kind of the litmus test of of R&D or innovation when, you know, comparing it to kind of how much cash is coming off the balance sheets of the largest 500 companies? Um, probably. Does that mean, you know, and does that mean that the solution is um, for, for venture to have, you know, better returns or to have, to find greater companies to pour more capital in? You know, probably not. And having come from the PE world, I'm actually interested to, you know, hear what you think of venture, to, venture as a relative to, you know, other asset classes these days. You know, there's a lot of interesting data on the environment getting frothy. You mentioned that a bit, um, though it has become a little bit more cool and rational since, since 2016, especially since I think February 2016, when, when LinkedIn and Tableau, um, you know, dramatically dropped in market cap in that, in that one week. But, you know, even, even then, you know, generally, I think in 2017, LPs seem more bullish, you know, about putting money into venture. I think there are some underlying mechanics that point to why this may be, you know, I've, I've done a lot of thinking on this concept and I, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I, I really think it boils down to one fundamental concept. I think if you believe that, you know, the generational companies are getting built right now, 
as opposed to the companies that, you know, would create value if they timed the markets correctly, you know, via a favorable financing environment or financing activity like an IPO or M&A. It's, it is hard to see, you know, from the outside in how venture isn't an attractive asset class, even in a slightly frothy environment, because ostensibly the value created will just be so large that it doesn't really matter if, you know, there's a marginal inflation of valuations. And, and as an LP, you're, you're almost getting the equivalent of an ETF on the private side, right? You're not forced to absorb the risk of a single investment or a stock. So, you know, how do you think about, you know, venture as, as relative to other class, uh, asset classes these days? Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I think venture right now is really seductive, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, first, you know, I think the opportunities uh, really are there. The level of disruption now, you know, I think is unprecedented. You know, you, you think about every major industry, media, telecom, financial services, retail, insurance, consumer products, professional services, including law, education, healthcare. They're just, they're all undergoing, you know, massive change. Um, and it, it takes employees to scale a business, and venture as a result really is often there to provide initial and follow-on capital. And um, and then, you know, on top of that, there have been really massive wins over the past five years. Um, you know, many more paper gains um, than real gains, but a lot of, you know, real, you know, economic gains and, and cash flow coming out of the venture exits. Um, and in this really low interest rate environment, there are not that many other opportunities that offer the possibility of such attractive returns. So, you know, there are lots of people looking to put money to work in venture and trying to get access to the VC firms. But on the other hand, venture is really expensive for LPs. Almost half of the economics go to the venture firm. So unless you're in the top 25 or so firms, having your capital locked up for 10 years or longer in firms that either lose capital or, or provide a single-digit return isn't really a great strategy. So, you know, if you're not in a top firm or you haven't identified what you think is a really interesting up-and-coming firm or don't just simply get lucky, you know, it gets ugly pretty quickly for an LP. So, But, you know, I think the thing is hope springs eternal, and as a result we have, you know, lots and lots of VC firms and angel investors looking for the next Facebook or Uber, Uber, but it's difficult to identify those, you know, companies early on. So, you know, I think what will change here probably is when the economic cycle shifts and there's a correction, a lot of LPs, you know, will we'll pack it in and move away from venture. Um, but ironically, that'll be probably the best time to invest. And as a result, really, you know, I think we think the best strategy for LPs is, you know, if you can get into what you think is an effective firm or set of firms and you can stay with venture over a longer time horizon, that's where you're going to really reap the benefits, you know, when you can have that time diversification. And um, in the history of our firm, where we did that sort of for the Pips family, and we've done it over multiple generations, that's, that's resulted in a lot of wealth accretion. You know, we can, when you can sort of stick with venture and you're in, you're in a firm or set of firms that, you know, you think are going to deliver. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, actually, when you kind of look and you chart over the course of the last, you know, 20, 30 years and you look at, you know, major exits and, and really when a lot of these influential companies were founded, you actually find that it's pretty well removed from the ups and downs of, you know, the financial markets and financial cycles. Um, you know, Airbnb and, and Uber were 
you know, found kind of at the depths of the rungs of, of the recession around that time frame. exactly to your point, right? When I, when I bet, you know, a lot of the LPs were actually packing up and, and heading out of venture um, and possibly missing out on some of those returns. One of the, one of the points you made, I think is interesting. And I, you know, it's, it's the capital lockup period. And it's something that, you know, I'm bullish about startups, their overall value creation. And, and I hear the point on the economics of being kind of involved with the top firms that all being said, even if you are involved with, you know, with the top firms, I, I am slightly concerned with how the idea of the IPO has changed and what it holds for the future. You know, 20 years ago, there was something to the tune of, I think, about 9,000 public companies. And today, there are less than half that. There's only about 4,000. And, and that trend is, um, you know, is likely to decrease further. There's a net negative today of companies being listed. I think you know, it's never been more competitive between you know, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ because of the dearth of availability of, of folks that are trying to get listed. And that dynamic is a little bit puzzling at times, given you know, that for companies that do go public, there's a significant amount of cash um, that is available. And I think part of that is driven by a low interest rate environment. So you know, I have a micro and, and macro question. You know, on, on a more tactical level and micro level, what are you observing, you know, with respect to why less companies are going public? Um, you know, is it a governance issue, a cultural issue, or, or something else? And then I think at a 30,000-foot level, um, the more, you know, possibly interesting question is, what are your thoughts on whether this is a good or bad thing for society and, and innovation? You know, heavy-hitter public tech companies like Facebook, Amazon, Google have so much cash on their balance sheets these days. And They've really created a market. You know, there used to be a time where you couldn't get so big because nobody would buy you. But these guys have really created a market for large-scale M&A, um, and for which previously, right, to get liquidity, you had to go public. And I think the positive impact of that is companies can really act at scale. But I think there's a very real negative impact there as well, which is, you know, select companies are just concentrating a significant amount of talent and, and innovation potential. And it really gets harder to build a Google competitor when, you know, Google is picking off sub $50 million businesses left and right, if not for anything, but the talent and technology. So, you know, how do you think about those issues? You know, first, you know, why less companies are going public at, at kind of a tactical level? And then two, at the broader level, uh, your thoughts on whether that's good or bad for society and innovation generally? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I think right now the IPO market is really being affected by the ability of um, tech companies to raise very significant amounts of cash pre-IPO at very high prices. Um, and those valuations really create a bar that those companies have to clear before um, they can go public. And so, as, as a result, it just really takes time for those companies to build um, real businesses that generate real cash to then uh, IPO at a level that will clear the last set of investors that are investing. So I think that's really impacted a number of companies that, you know, in really almost any prior period, they would have gone public by now, and they've put it off. And I think that does have consequences consequences in terms of, you know, are these companies now being run efficiently? Do they have discipline? And ultimately, it is good, good to have the public market discipline, the transparency. You've got to deliver. You've got accountability. You need to build that into the company culture. I don't think you can wait too long to do that. You know, we've got some companies out there that have been built cultures that uh, we're scratching our heads and wondering, you know, are they sustainable? And we like having a discipline, and we really push our companies to go public more quickly so that they can 
uh, get out there and kind of absorb the environment that they're going to have to live in. And in terms of, you know, sort of the, some of the big, you know, companies out there like Facebook and Amazon and Google, um, you know, is it good to have these companies out there and, and you know, buying uh, companies early on, maybe picking them off before they've had an opportunity to become larger, more significant public companies? I, I don't know that I see that, you know, surviving forever. I think, you know, we've had companies that have been, uh, you know, the, the large gorillas in the market, and they've, they've done it for a while, but I think it's often in, in these really big companies hard to sort of maintain that over a long time horizon. So well, I think that's a near-term issue. I don't know that I necessarily see that you know, paying out, playing out over a long, long time horizon. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal had an interesting article actually a little bit about this and, and specifically focusing on kind of, you know, uh, a lot of the unicorns raising cash in 2014, 2015, not raising again in 2016. And and what the ultimate outcome was going to be, whether it's going to be, you know, big tech kind of picking them, picking up these companies in, in the form of aqua hires or, you know, pennies on the dollar, or really if these companies were kind of going to go on to become big successes. And, and one of the focus areas actually of that article was a little bit about, you know, Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco generally. You know, I, I think when you think about Silicon Valley and, and SF generally these days, it really has its own cachet, right, with respect to talent, capital, and ideation. And, you know, as entrepreneurship has become, you know, a little bit glorified, I think, in the media these days, and, and a little bit dangerously so, um, I think one of the positive effects, though, is you do see a lot more of desire of cities to become kind of what I call in quotes, you know, become the next Silicon Valley, right? And I, while I think that attempt to become an innovation hub is, is admirable, and I, I do think that's good for society, I think where a lot of folks kind of miss the boat on the conversation is trying to entirely emulate or replicate Silicon Valley. I, I actually think that's a failing strategy. And a little bit of that thinking actually comes from, you know, how disruptive innovation has worked in the tech world, right? After Microsoft, the next great business wasn't an operating system. It was search with Google. And after search, it was a social network. And so the next great innovation hub, you know, although there are things to learn from Silicon Valley, aren't specifically going to be, you know, trying, recreating Silicon Valley itself. Uh, my two cents on the topic, I think cities should focus less on what Silicon Valley is doing and really go in all on their competitive strengths. You know, I think Pittsburgh, Phoenix have, have had a pretty cool, interesting story with this on trying to really drive up the self-driving car pilots. I think it's good for the ecosystem um, for a host of reasons. You know, they're attracting machine learning and AI talent, which is important for future companies. They're establishing a good kind of balanced regulatory environment. They're also setting a precedent on how startups can work with large companies. You know, if you were clean sheeting a plan, you know, for a city to become an innovation hub, how would you do it? You know, what what would you focus on? What are some of the good lessons from Silicon Valley you would bring, and, and what are some of the things that you would uh, you'd leave behind? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Uh, you know, one, one thing is, you know, we've we've observed over a long time horizon that innovation is increasingly happening in a lot of places other than Silicon Valley. I think historically, roughly half of our deals have come from other places outside of Silicon Valley, places like Ottawa and Canada or Israel or Boston or L.A., Scottsdale, Arizona, Estonia, I mentioned Skype. Um, you've got a lot of software tools that are accessible globally. Interesting pockets of talent can be found in lots of places. We have multiple companies now that are building teams that are dispersed. So it's, you may have a geographic headquarters of a company, but actually the talent pool is in lots and lots of different places. Um, so, 
you know, when I think back on Silicon Valley, that really started as a result of you had a bunch of pioneering tech firms. You had Stanford as a source of tech and funding. You had local capital. And then, you know, the public sector, and back then it was mostly the DOT, provided a rich source of contracts. And that laid a great foundation that established the culture. Uh, but if you, Josh Lerner at HBS has done a lot of interesting work in this area. He's got a book that he wrote a number of years ago called Boulevard of, Bro of Broken Dreams. And it's really, he focused on kind of the, the massive mistakes that have mostly been made. And there's really limited ability of government to stimulate the entrepreneurial sector directly. And, and most of these efforts have, have failed. And they're typically not really designed well. And, and what, you know, I think he found and what we found as well is that really what governments can do is set the table. They can, for example, create rules to allow self-driving cars and not, not rules that are unreasonable. I mean, I think the auto industry in general in the past, past 100 years, of, I think 10 million people have been killed in the U.S. auto industry. It's not, some would say it's not, it's not a safe you know, thing to do at all, and, and we wonder why, why are we even there where we let people drive around these massive vehicles and kill people. But, you know, I think cars will get safer. I think autonomous vehicles are really interesting, an interesting way to think about doing that. And as a result, you need reasonable regulation to kind of figure it out. There, there will be accidents, but are we going to get better? We have to allow for that to happen. So I think they can set the table. They can think about, you know, a lot of that happens at the federal level. They can happen at the local level in terms of tax rules, in terms of immigration and market regulation and what, what's happening with pensions or, you know, local pension and state pension funds. Can they invest in, in venture? What are the employment rules? A lot of those happen at level. What, what's happening with housing? You know, San Francisco is a challenge right now because you know affordable housing isn't there. How how you know how can the city help with that? How do they support universities, which you know can drive some of the interesting innovation? How do how do we think about public-private partnerships? So I think they can they can help set the table. They can maybe in some circumstances maybe just not get in the way. But they're you know I think uh, government you know shouldn't be the driver, but there's a lot they can do. Yeah, I think the government story is actually really interesting. Uh, you know, before we kind of dive into that, I think the self-driving cars point you made is is nuanced and, and interesting, and I want to kind of focus on that just for a second from the perspective of, you know, I think the media does. Um, I think uh, generally when when change is happening, it's it's very you know easy to estimate what's going away and what's getting changed, and it's very difficult to estimate the positives that are that are going to come up, right? So a lot of the media stories these days are you know jobs are going away, et cetera. Which, which is interesting because, you know, if you think of 2010, you would have never, you know, in 2005, you would have never imagined there would be something like an Uber driver as a, as a viable employment opportunity. So I think, you know, systematically, it's it's easy to to kind of look at what's going on away and it's it's hard to see what's coming. And, and with self-driving cars specifically, I think the narrative often focuses on, you know, there's a car crash. Um, and, you know, a car crash is terrible, but I think the, the apt way to do it is to say, there was one self-driving car crash today, you know, on June 21st, 2016, how many human car crashes were there on June 21st, 2016, right? So you're really comparing kind of apples to apples. Um, right. And so I think, you know, that plays, that narrative actually plays a very important kind of structure and issue in, in the role of government also. I think, you know, what we're seeing kind of in the political climate today is that narrative often 
um, drives a lot of outcomes of, of the way people perceive government and, and kind of the actions and, and uh, outcomes that governments are achieving. So, you know, as we finish up kind of Q1, you know, we finish up Q1 here of 2016 and, and coming up on the first 100 days, you know, of the new administration, what do you, you know, what do you see for venture tech and, and startups and in, in kind of the rest of 2017? And what are the big stories? You know, on the optimistic side, I think there's a lot of activity in the financing side. And I think there is potential for some good changes, um, you know, if, if, you know, tax, um, if tax reform actually goes through, I think a lot of these public tech companies that just have enormous amounts of cash on their balance sheets could really bring them back to the country. And I think we could see, you know, more R&D, M&A. I think the enterprise IPO story has been relatively healthy, you know, kind of this first quarter. So I think there's some room to grow there. Um, and other than the financing side, I think also on the positive angle, I think, you know, there's, I think we'll see some stories on the technology side. I think we're seeing the maturation of mobile clearly, but I think we'll probably start to see a new underlying tech stack go mainstream. Um, you know, machine learning, AI, it's really picking up steam and, and becoming a household word, kind of like cloud was a few few years ago. On on the pessimistic side, though, I see a lot of uncertainty given, you know, the turbulence in Washington. At a micro stage, I think it means, you know, risk aversion for startups. Um, at, a, at a macro level, I, I get concerned because I think it has actually very real impacts of, you know, entrepreneurs deciding if, you know, they want to come to America, they want to start businesses in the U.S., you know, what what talent kind of decides to do here itself. So certainly, you know, a lot to be written out for venture tech startups during the remainder of the year. How do you see it playing out? You know, what are kind of the stories that you think will kind of come through? What are the things that, that keep you up at night? Yeah, so, you know, I, I would start by saying, you know, I think Trump is going to continue to be really hard to predict. Um, you know, while not a lot has happened in the first hundred days, and maybe that's in part because there's a, a steep learning curve for, for that administration so far. You know, I, I think there, you know, there's a chance that there are some developments like corporate tax reform that businesses are going to like. Uh, I think the 15% rate is, is that's too low in my view, maybe given economic inequality, uh, but that certainly would be positive for businesses. And, and there may be some regulatory changes that lead to interesting innovation. You know, we're always those are the inflection points where entrepreneurs seize on something and say, you know, hey, I think this is a change that will result in a new business opportunity. Um, but, I, you know, I think there are also certainly some risks that you pointed out as we retreat from um, globalization, potentially embrace some of the anti-immigration policies, um, you know, don't really embrace sort of climate change and, and the opportunities there, uh, you know, feels like to me a retreat from the rule of law that, uh, and, you know, Trump could, could do something that, you know, may start a trade war, he may start a war that's not on Twitter. Um, so it's, I think it's just unpredictable at, at the moment. And uh, But I do think that innovation is impacting a broader swath of the economy than when I started Adventure. You know, we've seeded funds, you know, deals like Blue Apron, a food company. We've invested in fashion, autonomous vehicles, batteries agriculture, and, and we're, we're still in the first few innings of, of things like cloud adoption. Okay, we think enterprise software is you know, starting to really change rapidly. Um, the giving tools to the mobile workforce out there, is, that's really compelling. It's almost half the U.S. workforce. That, that overall bodes well for continued opportunities to invest. Um, you know, it also means we're going to have you know, a, a set of tougher challenges as Technology disrupts so many existing industries. 
you know, if you couple that with, you know, automation happening in manufacturing, global flows of capital and people, shrinking safety nets, you know, income inequality, you know, that's going to continue to transform the workplace and society and probably more rapidly than we've seen in the past. And, um, you know, that, that may, may very well mean that some of our social contract is going to have to be rewritten. You know, are we, for example, headed to a guaranteed basic income? You know, I, I think maybe ultimately we, we do get there, but that, you know, what that transition looks like and how that's going to impact uh, venture more broadly, I think it's hard to speculate. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, Ed, as we kind of round out the conversation here, I actually want to switch gears away a little bit from the substantive piece and focus a little bit back, you know, on, on your personal journey. You know, I I think careers are all about people, and, and I'm really interested to hear, you know, in your variety of experiences, you know, who over the course of your career has been, you know, the most impressive person you've interacted with? And that, you know, that can be a founder, an entrepreneur, um, you know, anyone. And, and what I'm interested in is really, you know, what were the set of characteristics about that person that, that impressed you? Sure. You know, I, I had just really great fortune to work with a lot of thoughtful, interesting, and often colorful people on the variety of jobs I've had. Um, but I, I think I'd go to the start of my career in the Navy and maybe pick the captain of the first ship I was on. Um, he showed me really what late leadership was all about. And I think that had a lot of influence about me. Um, a quick anecdote about him, maybe. His name was Nick McKenna, and he wasn't the first captain I served under. When I first got to my ship, I served under a really awful captain. I, I knew it the first day when he was arrived. The ship, when, when I arrived, the ship was in port, and all the officers typically all eat together. And the first day, it was only me, the captain, and the supply officer in charge of all the food on the ship. And everybody ate in their staterooms, and I was wondering, you know, okay, this doesn't really bode well. And he was a guy that technically knew a lot. He worked incredibly hard. He drove everybody really hard. He was smart, but he had all the wrong instincts about leadership. And he took the approach of trying to really tell everyone what to do in a very detailed way. He really couldn't inspire people. And the ship really deteriorated in a, in a significant way. He was kind of like a lot, like, like Captain Quig in the movie The Cane he, he, he was rational about a lot of small things. And then uh, he was replaced, and guy by the name of Nick McKenna came on board and he really knew how to lead and there's a saying in the Navy that it says, you know, the captain is the last reigning monarch on earth and it's, it's really ultimately how you exercise your power in that seat that counts. Instead of lording over the crew, you know, he got to know each of the 200 plus officers and men and what they were about. He got out of his stateroom and he really wanted to know, you know, what did you need to get your job done? What drove you? And that really inspired us to make it happen. And after that, I really had the desire to kind of you know, put those uh, leadership lessons to work. And so as a final question, you know, if you had to distill, you know, the most important lesson from your career into a few observations, what would those observations be? You know, is it a mindset you'd advocate young professionals internalize or is it a more, you know, tactical focus you would encourage? You know, if you, if you had to give the elevator pitch, what do you think is most critical to focus on in the early days of your career? Something you're really drawn to. 
I think lawyers tend to be risk adverse, so it's not always easy to, to sort of take a leap. But um, you'll find that a lot of skills really do translate. Um, things that made me a good naval officer or made me a good lawyer or made me good at a venture capital firm. So, you know, don't do something because you don't have the knowledge. I think you want to really uh, take opportunities where you think you can make it happen and you, can, you really, though, have to learn and, and you want to keep learning. Venture is great from that perspective. And I would say take the opportunity to work with great people. I think your success is rarely the result of your own efforts. And then I think lastly, I would just say balance is really key. I think a lot of students and lawyers early in their career succeed by just working incredibly hard. But, you know, it's easy to burn out in doing that. And so I, I think what you ultimately want to do is to be much more effective, you know, and, and stay fresh and stay really inspired, um, you know, seek that balance. For me, that's really come from family and raising kids. And that's a really humbling job in and of itself, <laughs> from running, failing, working not-for-profit, um, just working on my own personal development and think about where you can make a difference all the different Well, very cool. Well, Ed, again, you know, this has been this has been a really fun dialogue. So, you know, really, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, it's, it's really been great.